this week, the comics guys explain Sandman Part 2. Thank you, Ben. Yes, this time we are going to finish up talking about the characters of the Sandman universe. Uh, and we're going to start with uh, John or Johanna, uh, depending on whether we are on paper or on film. So, uh, Darren, what do we need to know about them? Him? Her. Uh, the, yeah, the TV show is uh, very uh, explicit, by the way, in saying that it's Constantine, not Constantine. So, uh, right. it's you know, it, just just more fire for the uh, you know, more fuel for the fire of the argument of like how that's supposed to be pronounced. Um, but anyway, yes, uh, the the character John Constantine uh, and his ancestor, uh, Lady Joanna Constantine. Um, both figure in the comic uh, very extensively. And uh, it was a decision by uh, Neil and, uh, you know, Warner Brothers in making the TV show that they were not going to uh, confuse the matter of, uh, you know, the Constantine character and its various rights to other TV shows and that sort of thing. Uh, and so basically, uh, you know, replaced the modern day version of John with another female version of Joanna, basically. Um, in the comic, uh, John is, of course, uh, yet another Alan Moore creation that, uh, you know, with Moore having left DC, Neil kind of like felt free to, uh, you know, just kind of like pick up some of the toys that he left behind and use them. Um, John had first appeared back in Swamp Thing in June of 1985, um, where he appears as kind of uh, Swamp Thing's host Swamp Thing's, uh, you know, kind of like a, a tour guide, basically, through like the horrors of the U.S. in the, in the American Gothic series that basically led up to the crisis. And so uh, John Constantine is a magician, a, uh, you know, kind of like a professional investigator of the occult and that sort of thing, um, who's got kind of a, you know, like bad attitude. He's kind of a bastard. He's a, he's, he's a terrible human being, um, but he is still the hero, you know. Um, he has a distinct and pronounced tendency to be to survive situations that wind up killing or you know killing his friends or driving his friends mad or otherwise, uh, you know just gen generally kind of uh, needing to replace his supporting cast on a regular basis because uh, they, you know, hanging around with him is is not a safe uh, not a safe hobby for anybody. And so he is uh, in those first few issues of Sandman when he is collecting uh, all of the stuff that he lost when he was captured by Burgess, Morpheus uh, discovers that uh, the last person known to have hung on to his bag of dust was Constantine, was John Constantine. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that story gets retold in the show with Joanna Constantine um, as, as the new character, basically replacing that. And in the show, obviously, she is very similar to John. She has, uh, you know, not only the same name, but basically a similar backstory. Uh, the Newcastle uh, exorcism uh, uh, story, basically, is kind of like a key early appearance uh, or key early story of John's that the show basically gives to Joanna. Um, down to with the you know the details being pretty much the same down to the uh, escaping out of the building holding only the arm of the girl that she was trying to rescue in the first place um, those all come directly from the Hellblazer comic um, so that story basically happens that you know the way it did just with a different character in place uh, Neil then went on to create the original Joanna Constantine in the Richard Madoc storyline 
um, where she he has her show up at the bar where they are um, where they meet every hundred years where where Hob and uh, um, not I'm sorry not Madoc uh, Hob Gadling is who I meant um, where Hob and um, Dream where Hob and Morpheus have been meeting every hundred years uh, to discuss and Johanna has uh, you know kind of like had that story conflated to her saying that every hundred years the Wandering Jew and the Devil actually meet in this uh, in this bar and she is going to uh, you know like find them and force them to give her power um in that story you know she is uh she, she's kind of like thwarted in that effort um but morpheus decides that she's really kind of interesting and uh, certainly potentially useful and so she will then again appear uh in a later story that uh, might we might make it to next season depending on how the show goes or it might be season three uh storyline um that i'm not going to spoil for anybody now but uh is uh you know one of the best of the uh you know year four or five or so uh swamp thing storylines uh, that she will come back and it, it will be important uh, who she is and what her backstory uh with dream is at that point um in the comics uh after gaiman created her she has continued to show up uh periodically in other people's stuff she got a limited series of her own back in 2003 uh that kind of like told more of her story including the fact that she has uh introduced her parents lord and lady constantine um who are hung for treason uh in in england and uh, she is basically left an orphan uh to kind of like scramble for herself and that's where her her, her storyline begins Next character we want to talk about is uh, Matthew, is Matthew the Raven, who is uh, perhaps my favorite character in the entire series. Um, and it's really interesting. Uh, what an interesting character that, you know, what a great character that Neil wound up creating out of a guy who's really a major asshole in his early comic book uh, kind of uh, <laughs> Uh, appearances, right? He's a he's a terrible, terrible human being who gets a uh, you know complete face turn, and uh, as Matthew becomes kind of like one of the great heroes of the series. Um, Matthew is uh, as a is a Raven who was once a mortal, and the mortal that he was, which is not a thing that is like discussed extensively in Sandman at all, is Matthew Cable. Uh, and Matthew Cable had been a supporting character in Swamp Thing from the very beginning. He literally appears in Swamp Thing number one in uh, October of 1972. And Matthew Cable is part of the supporting cast of those early Swamp Thing stories. And he is basically a government uh, intelligence agent who has been the connection to the government for Alec Holland, uh, the guy who will become Swamp Thing, basically, and the, the government funding and everything for the project that he's working on. And so Matt has become friends with Alec and his wife. And uh, when they apparently die in that first story that where Alec is apparently transformed into the Swamp Thing, um, he is the hero, he's the guy basically who steps forward to investigate their deaths. And so for the next couple of years in the comic, he is kind of like running around in the background trying to establish the facts about the mysterious death of these brilliant scientists um, that, uh, you know, not knowing that one of them has been transformed into a monster. That's kind of like his shtick, basically. And so for the first couple of years, he, uh, you know, he meets Swamp Thing several times, obviously, as he is, you know, kind of like constantly sticking his nose in around different investigations. He's kind of like the reporter, you know, in the Incredible Hulk show or everything, right? Like he's, you know, he, he's always following up stories about what happened. And you know, over the course of the stories, um, he becomes kind of like a recurring part of the supporting cast along with Abigail. Abigail Arcane is the daughter 
of Swamp Thing's major villain, Anton Arcane. And she kind of like gets swept up into a lot of the story. She's basically a good guy. She hates her father and the terrible, you know, horrible things that he's done, et cetera. And she is constantly trying to help Swamp Thing in dealing with him. And over the course of those stories, Matthew and Abigail fall in love. And uh, at one point, they believe that Swamp Thing has been killed. This is all before Alan Moore's kind of like run on the series starts, right? They believe that Swamp Thing is dead. And so they basically kind of like retire from interacting with the, you know, this 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 setting basically and get married and uh, disappear from the comic, right? Because at that point, the story has gone in a completely different direction. There are new writers working on Swamp Thing at that point. And so these two characters have just kind of like disappeared. Matthew then shows up a couple of more times in the DC universe as a government agent, right? Like he keeps his job as like a government investigator, basically. And so he appears in the uh, the brief showcase run of Doom Patrol, where he is investigating the fact that Doom Patrol has a you know Russian uh, emigre, a, a, a Russian refugee on their team, basically, and he's like trying to deal with the Russian government and we're trying to get her back and that sort of stuff. So he continues to kind of like be part of the DC universe. He gets injured at one point and is at a clinic uh, recovering from his injuries where somehow, not precisely explained terribly well, he kind of like gets mental powers. And it's not really explained the, 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 the nature of these powers or really 100% exactly how he got them. Um, but it is clearly from his stay at this, you know, completely criminal and insane clinic that he was, uh, that he was at where it happened. And he then returns, he and Abby return to Swamp Thing uh, after several years of not appearing. And uh, he main, remains kind of like a background character. But this time, as we're like learning these stories, we discover that their marriage is in trouble. They're having a bad relationship, um, that he's kind of like a, 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 a shitty husband to her and all these things. And we discover that like part of the way that that's manifesting is that he is using his mental superpowers um, for his own kind of like twisted pleasures, basically, right? Like he keeps creating uh, beautiful women out of nothing, basically, and having sex with them, uh, you know, when she's not around, right? So she thinks she's have, that Matt is having an affair. He's not actually having an affair. He's just kind of like mentally creating fake women and then having sex with them thanks to his superpowers, right? Um, and so this is all kind of like part of the backstory uh, that's around the return of Abby's father as a major bad guy and all getting like tied up in the Swamp Thing story again. And in the course of these stories, as Matthew is being kind of like cruel to Abby and also kind of like revealing that he has this like weird cosmic power, he's not he doesn't become a supervillain. Right. Like most characters who like receive powers like this either become a hero or a villain. And, you know, Matthew doesn't do either of those. He just basically kind of like uses powers selfishly for himself. Right. And uh, but he's not, you know, committing uh, bank robberies or anything like that. Um, anyway, Matthew gets uh, drunk at one point and goes driving and uh, wrecks his car. And is lying in the wreckage of the car crash, dying um, when Anton uh, basically uh, appears to him. Uh, Anton is is dead and is like from hell, basically has uh, manifested as a fly uh, and comes into the wreckage, basically. And uh, as a fly basically talks Matthew into letting him take over his body. 
And so Matthew swallows the fly and then becomes basically a puppet for Anton Arcane uh, and gives Anton access to his powers. And so Anton, who is much better able to use the powers that he has, uh, heals Matthew's body and then goes on about basically becoming a, a, an enemy of Swamp Thing, right? Like, you know, Swamp, Swamp Thing uh, uh, encounters Matt thinking he's his old friend. And of course, it's Anton in disguise or it's Anton controlling the body. Um, and they have like this massive battle. Um, Abby is killed over the course of this story. Matthew recovers control of his body enough to kind of like, you know, fight Anton for like control of the possession of his body um, and retakes enough of his uh, control to allow, to, to use his powers. Like Swamp Thing has traveled to hell. Abby was sent to hell when she died by Anton. Swamp Thing goes to hell to rescue her, brings her back, and then Matthew uses the last of his powers, basically, to restore her body so that her soul has someplace to go when Swamp Thing brings her back. And then Anton is sent to hell, and Matthew is in the hospital in a coma at this point, for because when Anton leaves his body, the powers that he was using to kind of like sustain himself go away, and now he is back to being as injured as he was in the car accident. Um, right. he basically is in a coma for the next several years of Swamp Thing as Abby gets a divorce from him and becomes Swamp Thing's lover herself. And, and at this point now we're in the more run, uh, of these stories and the whole kind of like relationship between Swamp Thing and Abby is one of the uh, best, uh, features of that line basically. Um, and so, you know, Moore has written Matthew out of the storyline so that, like, he doesn't have to deal with, you know, like, uh, uh, Abby being connected, you know, Abby's previous romance, basically. And he basically stays that way for, you know, three or four years of DC continuity. During this time, of course, Moore gets into his snit with uh, DC and leaves and quits writing both, um, you know, Swamp Thing as well as, uh, you know, all the other stuff that he had been working on. And Rick Veitch takes over as the next writer of Swamp Thing. Rick Veitch and Neil Gaiman, of course, are both friends. Um, they have worked with each other previously. Both of them have worked with Alan previously. Um, and so as part of the uh, early push for Swamp Thing, the first kind of like crossover appearance that Morpheus has with any other character in the DC universe is in the an issue of Veitch's Swamp Thing. And in that story, we basically see, uh, Veitch has told the story in which uh, Matthew's powers have returned, he's come out of the coma, and he's doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and um, Abby has to decide whether or not to pull the plug on him. And basically, Matthew commits suicide and destroys the machine himself so she doesn't have to make that decision. Right? She doesn't have to live with the fact that she is the one who killed him. Um, he basically kills himself and kind of like writes himself out. And at the end of that comic, uh, we see or uh, Morpheus actually like, you know, standing in a, you know, in the shadows, basically um, talking to the ghost of Matthew. And then there's no specific reference to like what happens, but in the next few issues of Sandman, Matthew, the Raven appears. Right, without anybody explicitly coming out and saying that Matthew Cable, you know, his spirit became the Raven Matthew, uh, the only kind of you're expected to figure that out without it ever being said explicitly. Right. And if you weren't reading Swamp Thing and you didn't know who Matthew Cable was, it didn't matter. 
right? They weren't going to, you know, as, as Gaiman says, he's always trying not to force people to read other comics in order to understand what's going on in his. So if you don't know who Matthew is, you can just pick him up from the moment he becomes a Raven and, you know, like part of the story. But there are always references going forward when Matthew is talking about his life as a human um, that make it clear that he was, in fact, Matthew Cable. Right. At one point, he spends uh, he talks about how he spent a lot of times uh, in a hospital um, and uh, he goes driving with uh, delirium, of course. And, you know, like remembers the last time he was in a car with, you know, he got into a horrible accident, et cetera, and refers to, you know, like the rotten things that he did in his life before he died, before he committed suicide, et cetera. So these are all kind of, you know, just little uh, little uh, hat tips, basically, and, uh, you know, uh, Easter eggs for fans of Alan Moore's work that, you know, to just kind of like telling you that's who this character actually is, even though we've never come out and said it. Uh, that's cool. I did not know that uh, Morpheus showed up that early in anything. I always remember they made a big deal about uh, years later when Death showed up in Action Comics. Right. As it being like one of the first external crossovers. Right. You know, not not contained within the um, not with not contained within the Vertigo books, or right, not exactly. The, well, once again, this was unless and, you knew what was happening, right? Like, there's no he's never referred to as as Morpheus or whatever in the Swamp Thing issue. He just mm -hmm. shows up kind of like standing in the shadows, mm -hmm. right? You know, so if it's just this mysterious figure decides to come in and have a quick conversation with Matthew at the end, so right, makes sense. So the next characters we want to talk about that are, you know, kind of like key to both stories, both versions of the story, the comic and the TV show, are uh, Leda and Hector Hall. And if you don't know who these are because you've only seen the TV series, let me uh, kind of like quickly blow your mind by pointing out that uh, Leda is in fact, uh, her full name is Hippolyta, and she's Wonder Woman's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, that Hector is Hawkman's son. Now, before that gets, you know, like too hard to explain, let me point out that in both cases, these are the Earth 2 versions of Wonder Woman and Hawkman, uh, not the ones that you're familiar with. You know, like our our Wonder Woman does not have a daughter, uh, but the other one did for a while. So let's fill in kind of like the entire stories um, in for the crisis uh, when there was still an Earth 1 and an Earth 2, Roy Thomas had, uh, when he came to DC, uh, decided to write a series based on his love of the Justice Society and everything, uh, you know, and his, his love for all of those like old timey DC characters. One of the first series that he wrote was a series called Infinity Incorporated. And Infinity Incorporated was based entirely on Earth 2. It was the first series uh, besides the JSA itself that took place on that alternate Earth. And it was the story was about the sons and daughters of the Justice Society. Everybody on the team had some connection to, usually family connection, to a member of the Justice Society. And so this was going to be kind of like the new young heroes, kind of like, you know, Teen Titans or something like that. Um, except instead of having a relationship with the Justice League, they would all have relationships with the Justice Society. And because the Justice Society was a less frequently used, uh, you know, set of characters, we could actually kind of, you know, like give them families and have them retire and that sort of thing um, and have children and that sort of thing. And so this new team would have been their sons and daughters. And so two of the heroes that are in Infinity, Infinity Incorporated are Fury, who is in fact the daughter of the Earth 2 Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor, 
who have gotten married and retired and live on, you know, Paradise Island. And they have a daughter who has most of Wonder Woman's powers. Um, and then uh, Hector Hall was called the Silver Scarab, and he was the son of Hawkman and Hawkgirl. Uh, and, you know, they had also both kind of retired and, you know, like raised their raised their kids. And so they become the, uh, you know, part of the core of this team of Infinity Incorporated. Well, now, when looking at his, you know, kind of like plot, looking at his stories, Neil had already decided that the actual Furies, uh, you know, the three in one, the three who are one, the one who is three, et cetera, was going to be an important part of the story. And if you have not read the ending, once again, I will not spoil you, but they become even more important uh, at the actual end of the series. And so knowing that they were using this connection and knowing that DC already had a character who was called the Fury and had this sort of like connection to the Furies as characters, Neil decided that that would be something that he could kind of like tie into his continuity, right? Like this, this character, Hippolyta, would be uh, an important character. Now, before any of this happens, of course, the crisis happens. And Infinity Incorporated no longer takes place on Earth 2 because Earth 2 doesn't exist anymore. Roy Thomas is probably the single uh, you know, writer whose creations were most messed up by the, by the events of the crisis, right? Completely undid a whole bunch of his stuff. You can say Paul Levitz because Legion took a beating too, but uh, I think Roy certainly like, kind of took it in the, in the shorts uh, for this. But so we now have uh, one extended timeline uh, that goes back all the, all this way. Um, all of these characters are now on the same earth and the Justice Society appeared in the past of the modern day Justice League stories, which means there never was a Wonder Woman on this earth in World War II, right? The Wonder Woman of our earth appeared in the modern day. So who is Hippolyta's mother in that case? Like we've, you know, we haven't, we haven't removed her from continuity. She's still there. She needs to have a new character, you know, a, a, a new story, a new backstory explaining her. And so Roy Thomas wrote a story in which he created a new golden age superheroine who was also called Fury. And she was going to be the mother of the other, uh, of Hippolyta. Um, and so Fury, Helena Cosmatos, uh, starts appearing in Young All-Stars, and we learn that she got her powers directly from the Furies, right? She's not an Amazon or anything like that. She literally was empowered by the Furies in their form of uh, vengeance seekers, right? And so they gave her her powers so that she could get vengeance on the Nazis who killed her family. And so, as you can see, she's suddenly become like super useful for Neil Gaiman, you know, uh, like going forward in in uh, you know in in his storyline, right? Like a character cool, who literally yeah. was empowered by the Furies uh, suddenly becomes very kind of like important to her story to his story. So we tell this uh, entire story. Um, Ida now her like I said her mother is now Helena, but then she gets adopted by a completely other family. So her last name is still Trevor because her adoptive father is now Derek Trevor instead of Steve Trevor, etc. Um, so Infinity Incorporated continues to go forward in its new post-crisis, you know, kind of like uh, storyline, and Hippolyta uh, and Hector have fallen in love. And they want to retire from superheroing and have kids and just grow up and like live their ordinary lives. Um, but one of Hawkman's old villains comes back, basically, and uh, he turns uh, Silver Scarab evil. 
and turns him against the team and that discovers that there's like an ancient curse that was placed on him back in the 40s when Hathset, the villain, was, you know, like fighting with Hawkman, his dad, put a curse on him so that his child would be cursed forever. And then kind of like comes in to like pay off that curse in the 1980s, basically. Um, and in order to defeat Silver Scarab, basically Silver Scarab once again has to basically suicide uh, in the storyline to get out of, you know, like being turned against his friends. And so he doesn't appear for a number of issues. Um, and Hippolyta, we just see her, you know, sitting around crying a lot, basically, because her, you know, fiance is dead. Um, and then we have a set of stories in which Hector is apparently coming to Hippolyta in her dreams. And she keeps having these very vivid extended dreams about him and about the two of them just kind of like living their life in this world of dreams. Mm -hmm. And we eventually discover, uh, you know, when the, the rest of Infinity Incorporated basically sets a trap to catch him when he shows up in one of these dreams, uh, they discover that uh, instead of dying, Hector's spirit went to the land of dreams. And he has now been taken in by Brute and Glob former sidekicks of Garrett Sanford as the Sandman and made into the new Sandman because the old Sandman, as we pointed out, has been revealed to have committed suicide because he was so depressed. Uh, and so Hector, they make Hector basically the, the new version of that Sandman. And he's wearing the same costume. He's got the same powers and he has the same kind of like shtick of, I can only be in this dimension for an hour. Then I have to return to the world of dreams, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this gets revealed. They have a big adventure, et cetera. And at the end of it, Hector has become the new Sandman and he's wearing that costume and he and Hippolyta leave the team. Hippolyta reveals that she's pregnant and the two of them, go to live in the world of dreams full time and basically leave the series which doesn't really turn out to matter because the series was already in trouble uh from a sales perspective anyway and roy thomas was coming to the end of his contract with dc and so the comic winds up getting canceled before any more is told about what happened to hippolyta and hector in the land of dreams Series gets canceled, and as far as anybody's concerned, they just now live in the world of dreams, and they're done until Neil Gaiman comes along and starts telling his story. So all of the stuff that is in the comics uh, about the new Sandman and everything and the plot by Brute and Glob and everything is all revealed to be Brute and Glob uh, trying to, with, when Sandman is missing, to kind of like carve off their own section of the dreaming and control it themselves with their own version of the Sandman, replacing Morpheus. And so when, you know, uh, uh, Morpheus gets his powers back and comes, you know, like looking for them, basically, uh, he, you know, they are uh, sent to, they are punished by being sent off to the land of darkness. And uh, as Gaiman has Morpheus basically say to Lita and Hector, well, Hector, you're dead. You know, this is your your spirit was being held here by Brute and Glob for a while, but you should go on to the afterlife and basically erases him again. And of course, Hippolyta is horrified by this because she's been living with this guy for all of this time. Um, and he uh, Morpheus then tells Hippolyta, well, you can return to, you know, the land of the living, etc. But that baby uh, belongs to me. That baby was, you know, was 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 uh, was. Uh, conceived in the land of dreams and is therefore, uh, you know, my property. And so raise him well, and I will come for him when I need him. And Apollo is like, over my dead body, you'll come for him, right? Like, this is my son. You can't have my son. That's terrible. And he sends her back. And that is kind of, you know, 
where that storyline gets left until it once again will bounce back, uh, you know, very importantly in the future uh, with no particular spoilers again. But that's the way, if you only watch the show, that's the way it goes in the comic. Um, and that's why those characters uh, have this, uh, you know, this, this dream life and this dream conception of a baby that will be tremendously important later. There are a few other cameos of DC heroes that appear in the comics um, that don't appear in, in the show um, that are not terribly well explained in some cases. Um, when uh, Morpheus first goes to hell, uh, his first guide uh, uh, walking him around and basically taking him through hell and taking him past uh, Nada's cell um, is Etrigan not the new demon that they made up for the show. It's actually Etrigan uh, who, who acts, as his, uh, acts as his guide. It's a shame they um, couldn't put Etrigan in the, sh- in, the, in the show. It would have been amazing. It would have been absolutely wonderful to like, put that in, but that's a lot to explain. That's you know? true. He's such an awesome <laughs> character, though. But that's why the, the, the new guy's squatter bloat, basically. That's why he rhymes when he talks, is right. because he's, he's doing dialogue directly that Etrigan had. So. Right. He's a rhyming demon of... Uh... What is it, level right. seven or whatever yeah, it is? The, the, the cast of demons, basically, the rhymers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when Dr. Uh, D, when, when John D escapes uh, the asylum, in the comics, of course, it's the Arkham Asylum that he's escaping from, which is, you know, where Batman puts all of his sort of crazy villains as well. And while escaping Arkham Asylum, uh, Dr. Destiny has an extended conversation with Scarecrow um, about scaring people. And stuff, and it's a great little bit. It's not the way that Gaiman actually intended to write it. Um, obviously, you know, like if you're doing a story set in Arkham Asylum, as Gaiman said, he wanted to have the Joker in that scene that that Doctor D talks to. Um, right. But he was told by DC at the time that in current Batman continuity, the Joker was not in Arkham Asylum, and in fact was believed to be dead. Uh, and so the the editors basically told him he had to cut that scene, and Gaiman was like, "That's ridiculous." My, you know, and no, nobody believes the Joker's really dead. Everybody knows the Joker will be back. Why are you, you know, and they were like, sorry, we're dealing with, you know, like DC continuity. We can't have the Joker showing up in another comic when he's supposed to be dead in Batman. And so Gaiman rewrote the scene to include the Scarecrow. But that was the first time that Gaiman ever had uh, an editor push back on anything that he was doing with DC. It was literally the first fight he'd ever had with DC was over the right to use the Joker in that comic. And of course he lost, basically. And at that point he decided that, you know, that was when he decided that the continuity that he had been building, everything that he had planned when building the story, um, that was like so tied into DC's regular continuity. That's when he decided to kind of change that, to kind of like minimize that and have his stories take place in a different world from the DC universe that just happened to have some of these characters in common, right? And so he has always kind of like jokingly referred to everything that happens in Sandman after that as taking place on Earth Neil, right? Which is, you know, like a different Earth clearly than the one that is actually like dealing with the day-to-day continuities of DC universe, right? And so that was basically kind of, you know, him compromising with the DC editorial uh, that they were never going to get in his way again and make him change something uh, specifically for... Uh, you know, to, for continuity purposes. When that story continues, um, Dr. Destiny obviously needs to get explained to the audience. And so at that point uh, in the comic, Sandman Morpheus goes to meet with the Justice League. 
and meets both uh, Scott Free, uh, Mr. Miracle, um, the New Gods, who was a member of the Justice League at that time, and the Martian Manhunter, kind of like a hilarious sequence. Um, and uh, as he kind of like finds out what Dr. Destiny has been doing with his ruby all of this time, and then he's like, well, what did you do with the ruby last time that you captured him? And Martian Manhunter is like, well, we've got a warehouse uh, that's got like all of our stuff in it from when the satellite blew up. Right. And so the satellite in which the Ruby is being kept in the comics is literally the property of the Justice League. And as Morpheus is walking through it, trying to find his Ruby, all of the stuff in the warehouse is a reference to old Justice League stories. Right. All of the props and all of the stuff that's in the background and everything. Each one of those is a reference to some old timey 60s Justice League story, just as a gag, basically, before he like finds the Ruby, basically. It's a great story. And if you if you read uh, Gaiman's uh, interview most recently in Rolling Stone, he talks about how, you know, like that was kind of, you know, why he had to change things. And as he says, uh, you know, I did not want people watching the TV show to have to have read a bunch of 1989 Justice Leagues to understand what was going on. Yeah, that makes sense. Which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, and that's why you've got me because I did read all of the 1989 Justice Leagues, right? <laughs> so that's that's what I'm here for, basically. In case you actually did care about that, um, so yeah, so these are you know these are these are all references that like play with the show. Uh, as the show goes forward, there will still be a bunch more DC references of characters will continue to appear in it, but once again, they are no longer kind of like tied to continuity like future stories in the Sandman setting, assuming that the TV show actually does get renewed and, and comes back for further seasons. Um, you can look forward to characters like Element Girl, um, Prez, Wildcat, several other important characters are going to like still be part of the stories going forward. And I hope very much The Wake, uh, which is probably the funniest single appearance of Martian Manhunter in a comic book everywhere, everywhere uh, anywhere, uh, I hope they they figure out a way to actually, you know, kind of like preserve that on some level. But that's basically what we've got. Hopefully that's uh, explained a bunch of the stuff of uh, of Sandman. If you have any other questions, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity to uh, back us on Patreon and come to our Discord and uh, join the discussion of each of these episodes. And uh, if you have any requests for similar things like this, that's a great place to put them. If you are a Patreon backer, you get to decide what it is that we're going to be explaining. Absolutely. Uh, join us on Patreon and we do what you ask for. Thank you all for joining us for our exploration of Sandman. We'll see you here next time. Uh, I've been Steve Castro. And I'm Darren Watts. Bye-bye. Thanks for coming.